Part Three of the Sixty-Four Square Madhouse by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. Seatsfleisch, which roughly means endurance, sitting flesh or buttock meat, is the quality needed above all others by tournament chess players and their audiences. After Sandra had watched the games, the players' faces rather. She had a really good pair of zoomer glasses. For a half hour or so, she had gone to her hotel room, written her first article, interview with the famous Dr. Krakatower, sent it in, and then come back to the hall to see how the games had turned out. They were still going on, all five of them. The press section was full, but two boys and a girl of high school age obligingly made room for Sandra on the top tier of seats and she tuned in on their whispered conversations. The jargon was recognizably related to that which she'd gotten a doze of on the floor, but gamier. Players did not sacrifice pawns, they sacked them. No one was ever defeated, only busted. Pieces weren't lost, but blown. The Rui Lopez was the dirty old Rue, and incidentally, a certain set of opening moves, named after a long-departed Spanish churchman, she now discovered from Dave, Bill, and Judy, whose sympathetic help she had won by frequent loans of her Zoomer glasses. The four-hour time control point, two hours and thirty moves for each player, had been passed while she was sending in her article, she learned, and they were well on their way toward the next control point, an hour more and fifteen moves for each player after which unfinished games would be adjourned and continued at a special morning session. Shirevsky had had to make fifteen moves in two minutes after taking an hour earlier on just one move. But that was nothing out of the ordinary, Dave had assured her in the same breath. Shirevsky was always letting himself get into fantastic time pressure and then wiggling out of it brilliantly. He was apparently headed for a win over Serek. Score one for the USA over the USSR, Sandra thought proudly. But Benick had Jandorf practically in Zugzwang, his pieces all tied up, Bill explained, and the Argentinian would be busted shortly. Through the glasses, Sandra could see Janos' thick chest rise and fall as he glared murderously at the board in front of him. By contrast, Vatbitnik looked like a man lost in reverie. Dr. Krakatower had lost a pawn to Lismoff, but was hanging on grimly. However, Dave would not give a plugged nickel for his chances against the former world's champion, because these old ones always weaken in the sixth hour. You forget the biological miracle of Dr. Lasker, Bill and Judy chanted as one. Shut up, Dave warned them. An official glared angrily from the floor and shook a finger. Much later, Sandra discovered that Dr. Emanuel Lasker was a philosopher-mathematician who, after holding the world's championship for twenty-six years, had won a very strong tournament, New York, 1924, at the age of fifty-six, and later almost won another, Moscow, 1935, at the age of sixty-seven. Sandra studied Doc's face carefully through her glasses. He looked terribly tired now, almost a death's head. Something tightened in her chest, and she looked away quickly. The Angler Jowl and Grabo Machine games were still ding-dong contests, Dave told her. If anything, Grabo had a slight advantage. The machine was 
on the move, meaning that Grabo had just made a move and was waiting the automaton's reply. The Hungarian was about the most restless waiter Sandra could imagine. He twisted his long legs constantly and writhed his shoulders, and about every five seconds he ran his hands back through his unkempt tassel of hair. Once he yawned self-consciously, straightened himself, and sat very compactly, but almost immediately he was writhing again. The machine had its own mannerisms, if you could call them that. Its dim, unobtrusive telltale lights were winking on and off in a fairly rapid random pattern. Sandra got the impression that from time to time Grabo's eyes were trying to follow their blinking like a man washing fireflies. Simon Great sat impassively behind a bare table next to the machine, his five gray-smocked technicians grouped around him. A flush-faced, tall, distinguished-looking elderly gentleman was standing by the machine's console. Dave told Sandra it was Dr. Vanderhoof, the tournament director, one-time champion of the world. Another old putzer like Krakatar, but with sense enough to know when he's licked, Bill characterized harshly. Youth, ah, unvanquishable youth, Judy chanted happily by herself. Flashing like a meteor across the chest firmament, Morphy, Angler, Judy, Kaplan. Shut up. They really will throw us out, Dave warned her, and then explained in whispers to Sandra that Vanderhoof and his assistants had the nervous-making job of feeding into the machine the moves made by its opponent. So everyone will know it's on the level, I guess, he added. It means the machine loses a few seconds every move, between the time Grabo punches the clock and the time Vanderhoof gets the move fed into the machine. Sandra nodded. The players were making it as hard on the machine as possible, she decided with a small rush of sympathy. Suddenly there was a tiny movement of the gadget attached from the machine to the clocks on Grabo's table, and a faint click, but Grabo almost leapt out of his skin. Simultaneously. A red castle-topped piece, one of the machine's rooks, Sandra was informed, moved four squares sideways on the big electric board above the machine. An official beside Dr. Vanderhoof went over to Grabo's board and carefully moved the corresponding piece. Grabo seemed about to make some complaint, then apparently thought better of it, and plunged into brooding cogitation over the board, elbows on the table, both hands holding his head, and fiercely massaging his scalp. The machine let loose with an unusually rapid flurry of blinking. Grabo straightened up, seemed again about to make a complaint, then once more to repress the impulse. Finally he moved a piece and punched his clock. Dr. Vanderhoof immediately flipped four levers on the machine's console, and Grabo's move appeared on the electric board. Grabo sprang up, went over to the red velvet cord, and motioned agitatedly to Vanderhoof. There was a short conference, inaudible at the distance, during which Grabo waved his arms and Vanderhoff grew more flushed. Finally the latter went over to Simon Great and said something, apparently with some hesitancy. But Great smiled obligingly, sprang to his feet, and in turn spoke to his technicians, who immediately fetched and unfolded several large screens and set them in front of the machine, masking the blinking lights. Blindfolding it, Sandra found herself thinking. Dave chuckled. <laughs> That's already happened once while you were out, he told Sandra. 
I guess seeing the lights blinking makes Gravo nervous. But then not seeing them makes him nervous. Just watch. The machine has its own mysterious powwowers, Judy chanted. That's what you think, Bill told her. Did you know that Willie Angler has hired Evil Eye Bixel out of Brooklyn to put the whammy on the machine? It's a fact. Powwowers unknown to mere mortals of flesh and blood. Shut up, Dave hissed. Now you've done it. Here comes old Eagle Eye. Look, I don't know you two. I'm with this lady here. Bella Grabo was suffering acute tortures. He had a winning attack. He knew it. The machine was counterattacking, but unstrategically, desperately, in the style of a Frank Marshall complicating the issue and hoping for a swindle. All Grabo had to do, he knew, was keep his head and not blunder, not throw away a queen, say, as he had to old Vanderhoof at Brussels, or overlook a maiden too, as he had against Cherevsky at Tel Aviv. The memory of those unutterably black moments, and a dozen more like them, returned to haunt him. Never, if he lived a thousand years, would he be free of them. For the tenth time in the last two minutes he glanced at his clock. He had fifteen minutes in which to make five moves. He wasn't in time pressure. He must remember that. He mustn't make a move on impulse. He mustn't let his treacherous hand leap out without waiting for instructions from its guiding brain. First prize in this tournament meant incredible wealth. Transportation money and hotel bills for more than a score of future tournaments. But more than that, it was one more chance to blazon before the world his true superiority rather than the fading reputation of it. Bella Grabo, brilliant but erratic. Perhaps his last chance. When in the name of heaven was the machine going to make its next move? Surely it had already taken more than four minutes. But a glance at its clock showed him that hardly half that time had gone by. He decided he had made a mistake in asking again for the screens. It was easier to watch those damned lights blink than have them blink in his imagination. Oh, if chess could only be played in intergalactic space and the black privacy of one's thoughts! But there had to be the physical presence of the opponent with his possibly deliberate, unnerving mannerisms, Lasker and his cigar, Capablanca and his red necktie, Nimzowich and his nervous contortions, very like Bella Grabo's, though the latter did not see it that way. And now this ghastly, flashing, humming, stinking, button-banging metal monster. Actually, he told himself, he was being asked to play two opponents, the machine and Simon Great, a sort of consultation team. It wasn't fair. The machine hammered its button and rammed its queen across the electric board. In Grabo's imagination it was like an explosion. Grabo held on to his nerves with an effort and plunged into a maze of calculations. Once he came to, like a man who had been asleep, to realize that he was wondering whether the lights were still blinking behind the screens while he was making his move. Did the machine really analyze at such times? Or were the lights just an empty trick? He forced his mind back to the problems of the game, decided on his move, checked the board twice for any violent move he might have missed, noted on his clock that he'd taken five minutes, 
checked the board again very rapidly, and then put out his hand and made his move, with the fiercely suspicious air of a boss compelled to send an extremely unreliable underling on an all-important errand. Then he punched his clock, sprang to his feet, and once more waved for Vanderhoff. Thirty seconds later the tournament director, very red-faced now, was saying in a low voice almost pleadingly, but, Bella, I cannot keep asking them to change the screens. Already they have been up twice and down once to please you. Moving them disturbs the other players, and surely isn't good for your own peace of mind. Oh, Bella, my dear Bella. Vanderhoff broke off. Grabo knew he had been going to say something improper, but from the heart, such as, For God's sake, don't blow this game out of nervousness, now that you have a win in sight and this sympathy somehow made the Hungarian furious. "'I have other complaints which I will make formally after the game,' he said harshly, quivering with rage. "'It is a disgrace the way that mechanism punches the time button. It will crack the case. The machine never stops humming, and it stinks of ozone and hot metal as if it were about to explode. It cannot explode, Bella. Please!' No, but it threatens to. And you know a threat is always more effective than an actual attack. As for the screens, they must be taken down at once. I demand it. Very well, Bella. Very well. It will be done. Compose yourself. Grabo did not at once return to his table. He could not have endured to sit still for the moment, but paced along the line of tables, snatching looks at the other games in progress. When he looked back at the big electric board, he saw that the machine had made a move, although he hadn't heard it punch the clock. He rushed back and studied the board without sitting down. Why, the machine had made a stupid move, he saw with a rush of exultation. At that moment the last screen being folded started to fall over, but one of the gray-smocked men caught it deftly. Grabo flinched, and his hand darted out and moved a piece. He heard someone gasp. Vanderhoff. It got very quiet. The four soft clicks of the move being fed into the machine were like the beat of a muffled drum. There was a buzzing in Grabo's ears. He looked down at the board in horror. The machine blinked, blinked once more, and then, although barely twenty seconds had elapsed, moved a rook. On the glassy gray margin above the machine's electric board, large red words flamed on. Check and mate in three. Up in the stands, Dave squeezed Sandra's arm. He's done it. He's let himself be swindled. You mean the machine has beaten Grabo? Sandra asked. What else? Can you be sure? Just like that? Of course. Wait a second. Yes, I'm sure. Made it in three like a potzer, Bill confirmed. The poor old boob, Judy sighed. Down on the floor, Bella Grabo sagged. The assistant director moved toward him quickly, but then the Hungarian straightened himself a little. I resign, he said softly. The red words at the top of the board were wiped out and briefly replaced in white by... Thank you for a good game. And then a third statement, also in white, flashed on for a few seconds. You had bad luck. 
Bella Grabo clenched his fists and bit his teeth. Even the machine was being sorry for him. He stiffly walked out of the hall. It was a long, long walk. Adjournment time neared. Serek, the exchange down but with considerable time on his clock, sealed his forty-sixth move against Sharevsky and handed the envelope to Vanderhoff. It would be opened when the game was resumed at the morning session. Dr. Krakatar studied the position on his board and then quietly tipped over his king. He sat there for a moment as if he hadn't the strength to rise. Then he shook himself a little, smiled, got up, clasped hands briefly with Lismoff, and wandered over to watch the angler jaw game. Jandorf had resigned his game to Vatbinik some minutes ago, rather more surly. After a while Angler sealed a move, handed it to Vanderhoff with a grin, just as the little red flag dropped on his clock, indicating he'd used every second of his time. Up in the stands Sandra worked her shoulders to get a kink out of her back. She'd noticed several newsmen hurrying off to report in the machine's first win. She was thankful that her job was limited to special articles. "'Chess is a pretty intense game,' she remarked to Dave. He nodded. "'It's a killer. I don't expect to live beyond forty myself.' Thirty, Bill said. Twenty-five is enough time to be a meteor,' said Judy. Sandra thought to herself, "'The unbeat generation!' Next day Sharevsky played the machine to a dead-level ending. Simon Great offered a draw for the machine, over an unsuccessful interfering protest from Jandorf that this constituted making a move for the machine, but Sharevsky refused and sealed his move. "'He wants to have it proved to him that the machine can play in games,' Dave commented to Sandra up in the stands. "'I don't blame him.' At the beginning of today's session Sandra had noticed that Bill and Judy were following each game in a very new-looking book they shared jealously between them. Won't look new for long, Sandra had thought. That's the Bible they got there, Dave had explained. MCO, Modern Chess Openings. It lists all the best open moves in chess. Thousands and thousands of variations. That is, what masters think are the best moves. The moves that have won in the past, really. We chipped in together to buy the latest edition, the 13th, just hot off the press. He had finished proudly. Now, with the machine Sharevsky ending the center of interest, the kids were consulting another book, one with grimy dog-eared pages. That's the New Testament, basic chess endings, Dave said when he noticed her looking. There's so much you must know in endings that it's amazing the machine can play them at all. I guess as the pieces get fewer it starts to look deeper. Sandra nodded. She was feeling virtuous. She had got her interview with Jandorf, and then this morning one with Grabo. How it feels to have a machine, I'll thank you. The latter had made her think of herself as a real vulture of the press, circling over the doomed. The Hungarian had seemed in a positively suicidal depression. One newspaper article made much of the machine's psychological tactics, hinting that the blinking lights were designed to hypnotize opponents. The general press coverage was somewhat startling. 
a game that in America normally rated only a fine print column in the back section of a very few Sunday newspapers, was now getting boxes on the front page. The defeat of a man by a machine seemed everywhere to awaken nervous feelings of insecurity like the launching of the first Sputnik. Sandra had rather hesitantly sought out Dr. Krakatower during the close of the morning session of play, still feeling a little guilty from her interview with Grabo. But Doc had seemed happy to see her, and quite recovered from last night's defeat, though when she had addressed him as Master Krakatower he had winced and said, "'Please, not that!' Another session of coffee and wine and seltzer had resulted in her getting an introduction to her first Soviet grandmaster, Serik, who had proved to be unexpectedly charming. He had just managed to draw his game with Sharevsky, to the great amazement of the kibitzers, Sandra learned, and was most obliging about arranging for an interview. Not to be outdone in gallantry, Doc had insisted on escorting Sandra to her seat in the stands, at the price of once more losing a couple of minutes on his clock. As a result, her stock went up considerably with Dave, Bill, and Judy. Thereafter they treated anything she had to say with almost annoying deference, Bill especially, probably in penance for his thoughtless cracks at Doc. Sandra later came to suspect that the kids had privately decided that she was Dr. Krakatower's mistress, probably a new one because she was so scandalously ignorant of chess. She did not disillusion them. Doc lost again in the second round to Jal. In the third round Lismoff defeated the machine in twenty-seven moves. There was a flaring of flashbulbs, a rush of newsmen to the phones, jabbering of the stands, and much comment and analysis that was way over Sandra's head, except she got the impression that Lismoff had done something tricky. The general emotional reaction in America, as reflected in the newspapers, was not too happy. One read between the lines that for the machine to beat a man was bad, but for a Russian to beat an American machine was worse. A widely read sport column, two football coaches and several rural politicians, announced that chess was a morbid game played only by weirdies. Despite these thick-chested he-man statements, the elusive mood of insecurity deepened. Besides the excitement of the Lismoff win, a squabble had arisen in connection with the machine's still unfinished in-game with Cherevsky, which had been continued through one morning session and was now headed for another. Finally, there were rumors that World Business Machines was planning to replace Simon Great with a nationally famous physicist. End of Part 3